I just sent an email. No. Just didn't even look who no. was CC'd in. No. Guess who the person was. I can't. No. It doesn't get any worse than this. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke Podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I am Senior Consultant Maddie Burgess-Smith, and with me, live at Iron Duke Studios, is... Principal Consultant Byron Terrace. Hello, it's wonderful to be here on another episode of the Iron Duke Podcast. God, I love making this. This is fantastic. This week, uh, we're joined by Mike O'Reilly, Principal of Mount Roskill Primary School, who gives us one of the most impassioned and interesting interviews of this year, um, talks about the state of education and things like that. But before we get to Mike, Maddie and I cover a range of topics, including... Three Waters entrenchments and some serious constitutional uh, brouhaha, pay parity, the visit by Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin, and last but not least, the first fair pay agreement. So Maddie, start us off with something positive. What's your peak of the week? My peak of the week, and we've been talking a lot about the health workforce lately, is the pay parity agreement that has been reached for thousands of frontline community health workers. Now, it's important before I really get into this to distinguish the difference between pay equity and pay parity. Mm, please do. Pay equity is the process of ensuring men and women get paid the same for doing jobs that are different but of equal value with similar levels of skills and responsibilities versus pay parity which is the process of closing that pay gap up between workers doing the same job but for different organisations. So this is a pay parity agreement. So you've got nurses in the public sector making significantly more than nurses in the private sector and the government does take full accountability for that. So the government has committed to ensuring that there is kind of a level playing field across all of the health related jobs that they are involved with funding. This government has been dishing out the cash all across the healthcare workforce just to make sure people are kind of paid and respected accordingly for their work. This year, for example, 10,000 public hospital administrators got a historic pay equity deal with pay rises as much as 40%. What they're doing here is recognising that they are actually distorting the market and coming to the table with the cash that's needed to see people in that kind of public-private sector paid adequately. Great week all round if you are a health worker bank account. I'm not saying it's a great week if you're a health worker because there's still massive issues in that sector, labour shortages and the like, but um, awesome to see Andrew Little really stepping up and showing proper union-backed leadership as, as he is best known for. Honestly, when the government is committed to insuring anything, I'm, I'm just a big fan of committing to insure. It's, uh, it's more of my favourite government phrases that um, I'm committed to insuring that I use more of. Well, is there anything that the government is committing to insure that you have picked as your peak of the week? My peak of the week is a visit from a very important international leader, Sana Marin, the Prime Minister of Finland. Finland, I hear you say. Gosh, that's a long way away. Do we have much to do with Finland? No, we don't. Two-way trade between our two countries is worth $60 million. And our two-way trade with the rest of the world is something like $60 billion. And so why on earth is this Prime Minister of this particular country, we don't even have an embassy in, in Finland, funnily enough, coming to little old New Zealand? Well, the key message that Sana Marin brought to New Zealand and I'm, I'm, I was, I remember, uh, you know, really going, yes, that's awesome. I love hearing this. She got asked the question by a journalist. The question was, how can countries like us, you know, two small countries, blah 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 blah, 
use our soft power to influence bad things like, oh, I know the war in Ukraine. Her response was, yeah, soft power is great, but hard power is what we really need in this war against Russia. And it was really straight to the point, actually what matters is that when your country's being invaded is, is weapons, is guns. And there's a war going on there and people are dying. Got to remember as well, you know, Finland have been at war with Russia in the past. They share a border. They share one of the longest borders in Europe with Russia. This Prime Minister, Sanomar, joined NATO. And I think it is absolutely inspirational. Coming to New Zealand with that message rather than just the softly, softly, blah, 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 I think there's a bit of a wake-up call for those who kind of preach, oh, actually, you know, we've got no problem in all of that. See, that's an amazing answer to an amazing question, and that is something that probably should have grabbed headlines, but what actually grabbed headlines, I know, I unfortunately, know. was basically a journalist who had the audacity to ask, are you both only meeting because you're young, liberal, hot, female prime ministers? And Ardern came back with just another one of her textbook killer answers. My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Because two women meet, it's not simply because of their gender. The issue that I've got at the moment with the mainstream media is that they're just not reporting on the things that matter. Like the stories that actually matter, and this is my pit of the week, is stuff like what happened with the Labour and the Greens voting to amend three waters legislation that would entrench a clause that would mean it would require 60% of parliamentarians to vote to privatise water legislation. That may sound like nothing to a lot of listeners, but it's actually a massive deal. And there are so few things in our constitution that we actually go ahead and entrench. It's stuff around like how elections are set, stuff that really matters to democracy. The voting age, we were talking about it last week. Totally. And look, Labour's already in the early stages of backing down because it's such a controversial decision and it sets such a dangerous precedent. Mm. And the level of confusion surrounding this is just unprecedented. The move came is Ardern and Chris Hipkins as Leader of the House both admitted to not being aware that that entrenchment was actually in place until after the bill had already passed. Guess who else missed it? Both sides of the opposition too. The official advice provided to Nanai Mahuta who is essentially leading this work programme and she, heck after this ordeal, could actually become our first ambassador to Finland as you were describing we don't have. She was warned over a year ago that this entrenchment clause would be constitutionally damning. She was provided that advice and somehow this managed to just slip in there. I do think it's right that we go back and discuss with the Parliament its use in this case. I don't think it should set a precedent because these three waters assets are critical public infrastructure. What's anti-democratic is putting an entrenchment piece of legislation into something that is not constitutional in nature. Are you in this mess because Parliament was doing too much in urgency? No. She had the audacity to be like, well, it's not as bad as other entrenched things. For example, a lot of the stuff around electoral law is entrenched at 75%. This is only entrenched at 60%. It doesn't matter. Who (laughs) ever holds six... What one political party ever holds 60% of the House? It's a done deal. Yeah, the Prime Minister kind of, uh, she, she messed up a little bit, and you know, she essentially said in a press conference, like, I don't know, maybe I didn't know about it, maybe I didn't know about it, I'm not too sure. And then when Chris Hipkins said, when he was under questioning as well, oh, look, I, I wasn't actually in the room for it. I would. Maddie's going to explode. Oh, I'm, go- I'm so, actually I'm so explode. frustrated about this. Yeah. Hey, let's bring it back down. Let's just, <laughs> let's just bring it back down a bit. <laughs> What's your pit of the week, Byron? Well, I'll tell you what really has uh, frustrated me, and it wasn't that, you know, 24 bills passed in a week and this kind of supplementary order paper and the entrenchment issue kind of fell out. Well, that was a disaster. But I'll tell you what else is a disaster. 
The first fair pay agreements are now underway. This is my pit of the week. I don't think these things uh, are very good. And the first sector that is going to receive one of these fair pay agreements, which I'll describe in a second, is the hospitality sector. So fair pay agreements essentially are the equivalent of Australia's collective bargaining called national awards, where the government sets a minimum standard, so wages, breaks, other conditions, for specific job types. So like for baristas or waitresses or whatever. It's always really broad. It's Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. Because then you get into the nitty gritty about how you describe someone's job at work. If too many of the descriptors you use about the job position fall under a certain award category or fair pay agreement category, anybody in the economy that does that as a role now has that as a minimum floor. So that first sector that now has to pay for a big bargaining process on behalf of all employers, every single cafe. Every single restaurant. Sorry, who pays for this? Hospitality New Zealand, the Industry Association, will most likely be the chief bargainer on behalf of all employers. Not even those that aren't their members. So who pays for the bargaining on behalf of the employers then? So technically it's the employers, but the government also chips in, I think, a quarter of a million dollars of time, all that kind of stuff. Per sector? Yeah, per sector. The point that I'm getting to is that you set a national standard of pay that's acceptable in Grey Lynn or Ponsonby as it is in Greymouth or Gore. I think that's a great point that you make. And what we also need to acknowledge is that someone working in, yeah, to your point, Grey Lynn, Ponsonby, making an absolute career out of hospitality versus someone who's working at a lunch bar in Gore, whether these people should be under the same collective agreement seems completely absurd. Yeah. And I'm all for people being paid what their value is worth and for the job that they are doing. But at the end of the day, if you're going to put thousands potentially of hospital small businesses under to achieve that, who benefits from that outcome? Speaking of unionised workforces and collective agreements, teachers and education. So we had this wonderful conversation with Mike O'Reilly earlier in the week. Today we're joined by Mike O'Reilly. The last name might sound familiar to other listeners, but Mike is the principal of Mount Roskill Primary School. We're here today to talk about some of the statistics that are coming out, some of the trends that are coming out about education, and also about the challenges facing the sector. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I'm honoured to be here. I'm an avid listener of the podcast, and so um, when your invitation came through, I was... You know, a fan, fan favourite. So, yes. Yeah. Good to know one of the O'Reilly brothers is listening. <laughs> hey, Mike, tell us a bit about your career in education and, and what's led to the role that you're in here at Mount Roscoe Primary. You know, I started in the education game over 40 years ago in the sort of early 80s. And obviously education in New Zealand was a very different place then. And um, eventually made my way up to be a, a principal. This is the third school I've been a principal at. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, I just I love working with kids. I love working with families, uh, and I love building capacity in teachers and staff in a school. I just I find it really um, exciting and rewarding. Brilliant. So describe where we're at. Describe what the situation is is like now. You know, we've come through the pandemic. We're into a really interesting phase. Just what's your high level overview? Yeah, look, we're still very much in recovery mode. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about attendance, I know, but that is a major concern in terms of what's happening post-COVID. Uh, we've still got families who are uh, worried about sending their kids back to school. Mm. But just as interestingly, families, when their kids have got a cold or are sick, are keeping their kids at home because 
they're worried about that. And so just for context, Mount Roskill is made up of a lot of families from uh, South Asia and East Asia. So they're very, very considerate and careful around illness. Mm. And so the idea of their child coughing and sneezing over other children is not something that they would consider as being, they think that is rude. Yeah, so, so we still have that attendance issue. Yep. Academically, our kids are just a long, long way behind. It's, you know, oh. There's huge gaps in, in, in their knowledge. And it's confronting, but you can't let that get in the way of what you know good practice is. You know what's going to move kids forward, so you just need to stick to your knitting, not panic. You know, work hard, try and be as efficient as possible, and I know we can catch these kids up. It's just going to take time. Right. So, yeah, I th- we're still very much in that recovery mode. Got it. On the attendance point, 60% of kids are attending school regularly. What does that mean for that 40% of kids? And are all 40% of those kids in that group that you've just highlighted, those COVID-cautious, sickly-cautious sort of kids? Because there are a lot of emerging trends as to why kids aren't going to school. Are you seeing some of those play out here? So what I would say about that is that there is – it's a very complicated issue, I think – um, in last week's podcast, Maddie, you talked about the complicated issues we have around uh, youth crime. Yeah. And it reminded me of, of what goes on for many of our families here at school too. Um, so I think poverty has a big part to play and I think we need to recognise that poverty can be exhausting for families mm-hmm. and it has big implications for kids in those families. And sometimes I think coming to school is just a, further down the priority list than what we'd like. Kids at our school, so when we ask them, how come, or in families, how come you're not coming to school? Sometimes it's a Thursday and a Friday and the kids, there's, they've run out of food mm. and there's no petrol. Wow. And the complicating factor is that is transience. So kids have started off at our school five, when they're five and six and they're in rental accommodation uh, there's been huge housing development in our area where the old state houses have been pulled down. These kids have moved out. The little boy today was late. Why are you late? Oh, I come from Ranui, which is 45 minutes away from school. Whoa. But he's staying on campus because he's built a relationship. He and his family yeah. built a relationship with the school. And, and the they don't want to. And they, yeah, and the community. And so they want to stay in the community. So it's complicated, it's variable. So when he has an unexplained absence, you can understand that that is not about a parent um, not wanting their kid to come to school. It's just that it's very, very complicated. There's obviously no silver bullet. No, yeah. of course. No. And you mentioned, you know, drivers, not drivers of poverty. Mm. You sort drivers of poverty out, help somehow the attendance piece, right? Yeah. So actually there's so much that sits underneath that. What's the role of, of the parent today what's the role of parents at the moment yeah so i think if we're honest with ourselves there are some families who are just plain disorganized the parents obviously have a role to play once again the variability around how much of that they actually take on is just depends on their situation but as a school the most important thing that we can do is build relationships when i thought about that obviously it comes down to that teacher and engaging that kid Mm. and the worst thing you can do is start ringing up and haranguing families about, you know, why isn't your kid at school? You can't go down that path. You need to try and be as open and as engaging as you can with these families, and that comes down to, you know, front of office staff. Yep. They need to be a, have a warm smile when kids come in. They need to call them, you know, be friendly and warm, uh, welcoming. Oh, you're late today, never mind. Come on, let's try and be at school early tomorrow. 
and we have campaigns around that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's good to be at school on time, but it's even better if you're early. That sort of thing. <laughs> um, so, so, so all that sort of stuff. And um, also, I think teaching kids as a school to be resilient around some of the things they can't control. Yeah, nice, nice. So I remember I had a little boy at another school, and he was his t- attendance was really poor. And I sat him down in my office and I said, mate, what's going on? How come you're late to school? How come you don't turn up sometimes? Mm. And he said, because my clothes are dirty and I smell. And the kids oh, tell Jesus me I smell. Christ. Wow. So I said, how come? What's going on? And he said, they said, well, mum and dad have already gone to work by the time we get up. Mm. And so he said, it's just my brothers and my sister and I and um, we have to look after ourselves. And he said, um, by the time I get to the shower, you know, everyone's pushing in front of me because I'm the youngest. Mm. And, um, you know, the, if I get my clothes dirty at school, then there's no one there to wash them. So I, we just went through and made up a routine where he needed, we got him a little alarm clock, so he got up before the others. Mm. He had a shower first. Yeah. I, we taught him how to use a washing machine, you yeah. know. And here, here was a family working poor. Um, and I, we just taught this little kid how to, how to look after himself a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, the other things we do here at school is we feed kids, we give them clothes, we give them shoes. You know, kids can is amazing. Mm. Uh, we've got a social worker in our school. We're very lucky like wow. that. So those things have helped us, but I think that needs to be seen more widely. Mm. We're a big school. If you're a little school, it's, that's really going to be really a struggle hard. to get on top of some of these issues. That's really challenging. It's interesting that you say the working poor because it's kind of a group of our society that we probably don't talk enough about and we don't talk enough about the implications of what that situation you've just described looks like. And one of those implications is declining achievement rates across the country, across Mm. the board. Mm. We're no longer doing PISA testing, which is the OECD's metric Mm. of how well our kids are achieving. You discussed at the beginning that we are falling behind. What more do you think we need to be doing as a country to ensure that our kids can be globally competitive and that those kids from those working poor families who are the ones we should be most invested in have the chance to have a really, really prosperous future in Aotearoa? Yeah, so I've, I've been thinking about this too, and it's not just for this podcast, but for other things. And I've spoken with my, you know my principal colleagues and um, about this. And once again, it's a very complex issue. But I think if we were to do one thing, it would be to improve initial teacher education. Mm-hmm. And I think you know you can talk about reducing class sizes. You can talk about you know all sorts of other ways that we can spend our money. But I think. The one that strikes us and me as being probably the most effective is improving that initial teacher education. So, you know, some of the countries that we've heard about and that do well in PISA testing, so Finland, I know they've dropped off a little bit, but they have a five-year degree minimum to get into teaching. And it's an education degree, it's no other degree. Yeah. Looked up a little bit about what Singapore does. Yeah. So they take, and this doesn't, wouldn't fit with the culture of New Zealand, but they take the top, you can only be a teacher if you're in the top 33% of graduates. And then you receive a stipend yep. for the three years of training. And you yep. talked about that in, in, about the nursing yeah. last the week. nursing, that's right, yep. And then they receive 100 hours of PD a year Jeepers. after that. And so let's just think about what happens in New Zealand. For the teachers that I've got, I'm employing teachers right now, and I've had quite a few beginning teachers applying. For most of them, they've got, or all of them, they've got a degree. Yep. But that degree can be in anything at all. So then they go to university and they do a one-year course to become a teacher. And that is um, simply not enough 
to understand all the complications that go on in a classroom. So just let's think about that. The New Zealand curriculum, there's seven areas for a primary school classroom teacher that they need to know about and in some depth. The most effective teaching strategies, what are they? You don't have to be professional, you just have to know about them and have some experience in that. Behaviour management techniques, obviously the treaty, working with multicultural and uh, communities and bilingual learners. I'd say 80% of our kids go home to a language other than English. Jeebus. Wow. At least that. That's incredible. And the, our teachers come here and they have, how do you teach these kids? What strategies do you use? Yeah. And, and we wouldn't be the only school that has significant numbers of bilingual learners in their classrooms. What about neurodiverse students? Mm-hmm. There's you know, rising numbers of kids with autism and they're mainstreamed in our schools. So here we are with a one-year course and I'm expecting these kids to come out as young teachers and have some understanding, they don't have to be experts, some understanding about what ASD is and how you manage these kids in your class because there's going to be kids in your class with this stuff. So to have one year to learn all that and come into a primary classroom is impossible. Mm. It's just impossible. So I think we need to think about the quality of the young people coming into our pre-service education. Mm-hmm. We do need diverse, a diverse range of people we don't want all academics. Yeah. But they do have to have a level of understanding around basic maths and English and hopefully a great curiosity about the world. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's going on in science around the world at the moment? What's going on in politics and history and all those things have an interest in the world, even if you're teaching five-year-olds. Mm. And then we need to have them go through, I think, I think it's a minimum of three-year education degree. Yeah. They have to do that. And then coupled with that, when they come out from that, they come into schools and there's more support, I think, for these young people coming into classes. And I think being put in a class by yourself with your kids, 30-odd kids, um, it's a big ask. Sure is. Especially after only a year of training. Sure So, is. yeah, we need to think about that. And it's at the moment, it's to me, it's not working. There's a great piece of work we've been doing as a school, and I know many schools are doing this, called Collaborative Inquiry. We set up time during the week for our teachers to get together and they're able to plan together and they're able to think about what they're doing to try and improve kids' out- outcomes for kids. And then every three weeks we sit down and we have a meeting about, so what are we learning? How are we getting better at what we do? Um, you know, What's the evidence telling us here? Mm. What can we do better? What can we do different? And take that on. So a, a focus on a continual improvement. And I think once you've got teachers who are very competent, very capable, and they're just committed to learning and getting better at what they do, then the system will improve. But until we've got all those dots joined up, it's not going to happen, and we need to invest in that. Pay teachers more. Wow, wow. Well, in the end you will, and people yeah, and people will start to say, wow, teachers are pretty cool. You yeah. know, teachers know what they're doing. Teaching they're, is a career, not an occupation. Yeah, you're right, and it has to be, you have to approach it like that. But what should we should be doing is raising the profile of teachers, raising their capability, and then – the public will see that as a great investment mm. going down the track mm. and that is the best way to spend our money uh, because the research is really clear. You've got a great teacher in front of a class building great relationships. They make the difference. That's how you fix the system though, right? There are good schools and there are bad schools and there are levers the government can pull and incentivising career paths is a, is a pretty easy one for them. Mm. Yeah. All right then, as is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, Mike, well foreshadowed... We always finish with a hot or not. These will be topics from the conversation. If you like them, they're hot. If you don't, they're not. Byron, kick us off. Light rail project coming into this part of the city. 
I'm going to say hot. I like the idea. Awesome. You also mentioned this during the interview, urban renewal in this part of the city. Hot. In the long term. Brilliant. Yeah, of course, yeah. Road cone capital of the world, right? Until then. The reintroduction of PISA testing. Hot. Nice. Performance pay. Hot or not? Not. National standards. No, not. Yeah, I'm going to do that. We need standards. When politicians get in the way of standards, there's no good's going to come from it. And, and, and lastly, rolling out free lunch in schools across the country. Yeah, hot. Brilliant. Mike, this has been a really enlightening interview. This has been awesome. So thank oh, you cool. so much for hosting us at your school and thank you so much for your insights into the education sector. Really, really appreciate and, it. Yeah, thanks so much for, for what you're going to do for a lot of kids to come. Oh, thanks, you guys. Before. No, it's, um, I've really enjoyed it too. So thanks very much for having us. In many ways, that was actually quite a hard interview. Like Some of the truths that Mike came at us with were really confronting. And I think for us, on a personal level, this is why we do the podcast. This is why we get out and we try our best to go to places and see people. After that interview finished, Mike actually took us on a tour of that school. Uh, and when he said only 40 kids in his school were uh, Pākehā, I, I think that may have even been an exaggeration of the number. They're running a phenomenal uh, centre for high-needs kids as well off the smell of an oily rag. I was really impressed uh, with that interview. I'm personally quite passionate about the education system and when you meet educators uh, like him, uh, you really do feel a renewed passion for why we need to do right in the education system. So I really appreciated that. And listeners, I hope you got something out of that too. Until then, we'll see see you next week. week.